0: All right, here we go, everybody. We are live, episode number 60 of Sports Cards Live. And before we get into tonight's episode, I want to thank last Wednesday's guest, Joel Alpert, live from his vehicle, the star of Ask Joel Anything. Thanks again to Joel. Also, this past Saturday, we had Karn Rye and Corey Donovan, also known as Yamwax, on the show. And then afterwards, uh, Corey stuck with me, and we had Ralph on for After Hours. Thanks to those guys. That was the Pokemon special The Halloween special, that was a lot of fun. This coming Saturday, joining me will be Scott Greenberg of Starstock. And then on After Hours, I have Chris McGill joining me of Card Ladder and House of Jordan. So that'll be a fun evening. Um, Also, if you're new, these episodes are long. So I warn you, bite them off in chunks. YouTube will always remember where you left off. If you haven't yet subscribed to the channel, please do subscribe. Just past 1,400 subscribers. So thanks to each and every one of you guys who have hit that subscribe button so far shout out to hobby hotline the which is their claim as the only live call-in show on the internet i'm a guest host this saturday morning at 11 o'clock eastern so tune into that and then i'm also guest on sat on sunday night on because i'm carlos i'll be sitting down with carlos and we'll be talking hobby sunday night at 9:30 p.m eastern as always your comments and questions are in play so do not be shy See, we got people in the, uh, in the comments already. So thanks, everybody, for joining. So let's get to tonight's guest. He got a start in the hobby in the early 90s when he would visit his cousin's card shop after school. He started playing fantasy hockey in 1996 after getting advice from his older cousin on players to pick and how to organize a draft. In 2007, he co-created the Illegal Curve website. And the related podcast followed in 2008 was later picked up by TSN. He's appeared on TSN Live Game, Color Commentary, and Trade Deadline coverage. In 2016, he was hired as a professional scout by the Florida Panthers, hailing from Winnipeg, Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Let's bring him out. Richard Pollock, welcome to episode number 60 of Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight, my cousin?
1: I'm doing great. I'm super pumped to be on. I'm super pumped. It's been a while since I've been on any media, so uh, can't wait.
0: That's cool. That's good to hear, Rich. I mean, obviously, you've been uh, scouting for the Panthers. You uh, you have a, another career as well, so you're you're a busy guy. So um, I'm happy to have you here. And if anyone didn't uh, didn't catch it, uh, Richard is my first cousin. So we go we go way back. It was my card shop that he got started in back in uh, back in the early '90s. Uh, I believe you know. I kind of like to take credit that I taught you and your buddies how to do uh, hockey pools way back in the day, and so. Really, thanks to me, you became a scout to the, for the Florida Panthers. I kid, I kid. But that's, that's fun-
1: basically it.
0: That's basically it. That's, that's that's how it all went down. So, listen, we're gonna get right into it with 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 the opening face-off question here, Rich. What's the number one thing that a hockey card collector should be looking at in terms of investing in a player's cards?
1: I think it's very similar for like for scouting wise, it's very similar as it is for a collector, and I think that's you're really, if you can, you're trying to get the best players possible, right? So obvious statement, but really the best players dominate wherever they play. So if you're looking to collect, then the idea would be, okay, you want a dominant player, not only, you know, in the junior ranks or college or whatever it may be, or Europe, but you want that player who's able to make the adjustment to the professional leagues quickly and then dominate. I mean, you're going to find we we'll probably talk about it later you're going to find you know there'll be some gems hidden gems or guys that are late bloomers but for every late bloomer there's four guys who aren't so if you can mitigate that risk and just be able to identify the guys who are good from the start to me you you're going to be more successful
0: for sure for sure yeah you know and how can you are there any tricks to the trade in terms of how can you tell early so a guy who you know very few guys I think dominate at all levels but some guys come into their own a little bit later is there something that you know specific that we can look to uh when you're watching a player even something that you might hear you know the the experts say the scouts say about a player is there something you know is there a common descriptor term that comes or that comes about that might say oh you know what that's somebody who you know. Okay, maybe he wasn't Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby all the way through his playing career, but he's somebody who might be a late bloomer. Does is there any way that you guys in the, in the industry kind of identify that or anything that really you know speaks to you as as scouts when you say you know what this is somebody that we think is going to develop? It just might take longer than the guys who have dominated at all levels.
1: Those guys do have you know. You'll find those guys, but the late bloomer is often a late bloomer at every stage. So if he really starts coming later on in his junior career and then, you know, takes a year or two and starts coming in his American Hockey League career, then you could say, okay, he needs more time to adjust to his National Hockey League career. But there's also a lot of guys, and you know, I did pro scouting rather than amateur, but there's a lot of guys who at the end of their junior careers dominate, and when you're 19 years old, dominating against you know, 16, 17 year old players, asterisk needs to go up. And then a lot of those guys will come to the American Hockey League, if not on National Hockey League contracts, they'll come on American Hockey League contracts. They'll be 100 point players the year before in the junior ranks. And they come to the American Hockey League, fourth line guys, tough to get a break, maybe get on the second power play, and end up kind of oftentimes being written off after two or three or four years.
0: Okay. Yeah. M- makes sense. Makes sense to me. So my buddy's just texting me uh, the name of that player. We were trying to, yeah, Cervenka was the name of that player. We'll talk about Servenka a little bit later. But before we move into more questions, uh, let's just say hello to the people we have watching. Paul Cashman, uh, good evening as always to you, Rondell. Hi, Jeremy. Looking forward as always to a great show. Did Richard ever cro- come across Alexi while scouting? What does he think about my Rangers number one pick? Alexi Lafreniere, Rich. Did you come across Alexi along the way?
1: Never came across Alexi, and, and to be honest, jared when you come, those guys that are that good, there's not as much discussion about them as you think. Like, I respect Rondell's question, but that wasn't much of a debate in terms of like scouting circles where to go with that pick. I think everybody thinks he's going to be great.
0: Yeah. Okay. So fair enough. It's all, and the same thing could be said for Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, right? you just know these guys are, are going to be great players.
1: Well, I'll get into that for one second because like, it's hard to watch Connor McDavid. I saw him play many games uh, while scouting. It's hard to watch him and not write a report on him because he's so good. But then you think to yourself, well, if I'm writing a report on Connor McDavid, like does this matter? We're never going to get a chance to acquire a player like that. He's a generational player, but you watch him and you can't help, but get excited. And at the talent and the sheer like how much better he is than every other incredible player. So you have to, you know, you have to guard yourself because you could be wasting reports that could, what your time would be better spent on players that your team actually has a chance to acquire. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, a player like Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, do you, Alexi Lafreniere, um, while you might not have scouted him yourself, You've, you've heard people talking about him over the last couple of seasons. Is he, in your opinion, going to be sort of the next Connor McDavid? Is he following the, the, is he following in the pathway of Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, Alexi Lafreniere? Is that kind of, do you see him fitting into that uh, group of players or is he a tier below more on the Austin Matthews kind of level? Where do you think he fits in relative to these other, these other generationals?
1: It's tough to say, cause I haven't seen him play other than on TV. Uh, so big caveat, um, and there's people who know a lot more than I do about him. I think that what I've heard is he's he's in the second tier that you mentioned, more than the first tier. And I think largely um, the comment there may be the lack of absolute dominance skating ability. Okay.
0: So skating being, of course, one of the most important skills in hockey. If you can't move, it's hard to get to where you got to get to, to score goals, set up goals, or stop goals. So
1: but Skating has become way more important than it was before, because if you watch a game, I don't know, during – the pandemic beginning of the pandemic if you watched any old hockey games if you would turn on a game from 2006 or 2004 when the flames went on their cup run you could grab a guy bear hug him and if you put a hand on a guy now it's immediately a penalty so you need to be able to skate and skating is is to me often actually a very subjective thing like you may think somebody's a good skater and another scout may think he's a poor skater so i think a lot of the tracking ability that's coming into play with the NHL in terms of you know, chips on the player's shoulder pads and getting their speed and such will actually help collectors determine you know, who has the maybe objective skill base that they can invest in.
0: Right. So, so what this, what I'm hearing then as a, as a card collector slash investor is that if I'm going to prospect on a young player a rookie, which I don't often do, But if I was going a lot of people do do that, though, if I was going to do that, I'm going to be looking at skating as being one of the most important skills of that player. And how are the scouts ranking this particular player's skating abilities? Because you can buy prospect magazines and draft previews and they'll rank the the prospects based on the different skill sets. You know, in addition to skating, what other skill sets do? And I know you did professional scouting versus amateur scouting, but obviously you, you worked with the amateur scouts. You sat in the room with them. You, you have those. You still have some insight. What other skill sets are assessed by amateur scouts in terms of a player's potential uh, in addition to, to skating?
1: Well, you know, you have, of course, hockey sense, which is, again, you know, subjective. So I I, don't, I think hockey sense has always been there. Like I think if you walked into a room, I didn't. But if you walked into a room in the 1970s, it probably would have been a similar idea in terms of player analysis on on sense. But skating and then you know I think it gets complicated. But skating and quickness have become so important now in terms of scouting players, and that goes for amateur and pro players because it has to translate. And I think you know maybe I should say fast and quick. So if if you're, if you're reading those magazines and they're talking about a player's quickness, that's almost become as important, if not more important, probably more important than that just straight skating ability.
0: Is, is quickness or fastness, is that like the ability to, um, you know, react to the play very quickly? You can be the fastest skater, but not register what's going on the, on, going on on the ice very quickly and get yourself to where you got to get to. I I I'm interpreting that as the distinction between skating ability and speed or quickness or fastness. Is that kind of, is that right?
1: A little bit here. Here's another way to look at it. If you, you know, when the teams have their annual um, skills contest, yeah. you know how often this, the, the player who wins the fastest skater is like the fourth line guy who you never really see. Cause that's yeah. just sheer skating without the agility and the quickness. So I think more, I think of that as more, east west and change of direction like mitch marner for example like is he mo- the most dominant skater or is he just exceptionally smart and exceptionally quick god so, i don't know yeah that
0: those makes skills yeah. yeah okay makes sense uh legion welcome to the show good to see you as always in rajon rondo good evening to you my man Dennis Lascombe, good evening to you. Welcome back. Jeff McMahon, good to see you as well. Brent Turman says, great to hear Rich again. Team Illegal Curve. There you go. Someone who knows you from from those days. Uh, Tiger Jordan says, another awesome show underway tonight. Always learn so much. Thank you, Tiger Jordan. Appreciate the comment. So, Rich, let's step back in time a little bit uh, just to give some history on yourself and how you really, how did you Become a scout for the Panthers. What were your credentials? Uh, A bit about your hockey expertise history, if you will.
1: Yeah, so it was an untraditional path, uh, non-traditional path, I guess you would say. Um, Started off doing a website, as you mentioned earlier, that covered the entire league um, with a bunch of of buddies uh, who deserve just as much credit um, as I do. And that was a website covering the league. And one of the linchpins of the site was covering the newspapers and for the 30 NHL teams. So basically you could come onto the website and have a summary of the entire leagues going on, going on. And it was, to me, I always wanted that because I was so obsessed with hockey that I wanted to go somewhere to be able to do that rather than go to all those places and find out the information. And it took, (laughs) it took many hours, many early mornings. It's a labor of love. That's for sure. And we eventually, uh, started a podcast, um, Legal Curve podcast, which was in you know late 2008. So we're in 2020, and a podcast, there's they're so common now. It wasn't so common then. Um, I was telling you a story the other day. Is our one of our first podcasts? We went on a Sunday morning to Red River uh, Community College, uh, where Ezzie, uh one of the guys from the show and the, and the website, was um, a student there. And it was a Sunday morning and we taped a podcast. It was with James Myrtle, who writes for The Athletic now, with the Globe and Mail then. And we were really pumped. It was taking forever to upload. We went to go grab food. We came back three hours later, lost the podcast. (laughs) So it wasn't like you can just sit here now, do it on, you know, boom, it's a podcast loaded everywhere and everybody has access to it. So we did the podcast, which eventually turned into a radio show on, on College Radio which was then picked up by a sports radio station, which became TSN. Kind of went off from there. Um, it's funny because if you think just, about it,
0: let me just jump in quickly for anyone who's watching, who's from you know the states or any other country, or anyone who's who's listening to this later on. Uh, the TSN is the sports network in Canada. It's Canada's main national sport. Well, it's one of Canada's main national sports networks. In in addition to Sportsnet. So it was, it was a big deal. And I, of course, you know, being Rich's cousin, I, I remember when this happened and just being so proud and impressed. So that was a, that, you know, in Canada, that was a big deal. I just want to get that point across. So sorry, please pick up where you left off.
1: No. Yeah. So we, um, so we did the show on, on TSN and it started, you know, getting opportunities to be part of uh, the Winnipeg Jets coverage because the Jets came back in 2011. So, you know, People who look back now sometimes think we just started it when the Jets came back, but we were into hockey, obviously, when the Jets were around the first time and covering yeah. the league. There you go. Exactly. Before that, I remember where your seats were behind the net. Jer always stood up. He was the last seat in the lower section. I don't remember what section number it was. Do you remember? Oh.
0: Well, we, it depends which seats you're talking about, because when I used to go with my buddies towards the end of the Jets for the Jets 1.0 in like 94, 95, 96, we used to get the cheap seats from like 711 or whatever. And then we'd go right down and sit behind the goaltender in the top row. And it was, there were just empty seats there all the time. So if those are the ones you're talking about, then I forget the section number, but it was right behind the goaltender
1: right so got yeah, i got a tangent but so we were doing it um before that and then obviously the jets coming back the national hockey league team coming back into town was afforded us more opportunities so it was it was fortuitous and uh we able we were able to participate in, you know pre and post game coverage even do a couple games of, of commentary and um we were writing you know um my other cousin dave manuk so cousins everywhere has run the website for many years now doing a, an incredible job and um from that, I was able to get an opportunity with Florida. Now, obviously, like I had a contact with Florida, who got me in there. I'm not just some random guy who was able to get in, but having done this stuff helped. Certainly helped in terms of uh, credibility, I'd say, and, and experience. And um, um, it, it was a, it was quite a journey, I have to say, and it was uh, all all fun. Like it's, it was all because I loved it, right? Like because I do love it. If I didn't, I don't think. Probably wouldn't have happened.
0: I remember when we were young. I mean, you were you played hockey. You you it was your life was was hockey. You know, to to the best of my my memory back then. So, I mean, um, it, it seemed like a natural thing for you to get into. What was it like though when you actually got the call? Like, I mean, it, it's 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 so it's so abstract to us to think about being a scout for a professional sports organization, any organization, you know, growing up in Winnipeg, like as, as you and I did, uh, you're still there. I've moved away, but I mean, it's, it's almost like, like I, you know, you've heard of, uh, of James Beckett, who of of Beckett magazine, who has been on this show in the same seat you're in right now. And uh, you know, back in, in 1991 through 93, 94, when I had a card shop, I would never have thought I'd be, you know, rubbing shoulders with with James Beckett, the, the man who started the Beckett, uh, what is now, you know, a large enterprise in the hobby. Similar to that, like when we were growing up, did you ever think you'd actually work for a sports organization? When we're doing hockey pools, we imagine ourselves as general managers of a team. When you do fantasy football, fantasy baseball, fantasy basketball, anything, you think of yourself, you imagine yourself, you dream of being able to do this professionally. I remember doing that myself. So back to you, when you were younger, did you ever think about, was it on your mind, maybe one day I'll work for a professional sports organization or a, a, hockey, a an NHL team at, in any capacity?
1: Yeah, you kind of, I mean, I kind of always dreamed about it. So I guess I had that vision to an extent, but I'm not sure my vision was any different than anybody else's. I just got fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do it. Yeah. But like when you were mentioning, you know, it's setting in. I think when I got the contract at the logo and the contract and, like, okay, this is my contract. And you're, part of you just wants to sign it immediately, send it back because they're going to change their mind. And the other part is like, well, I should read the contract because, well, I should know what I'm signing. Yeah, And so that's when it became, kind, you know, it became real. And then I think it really set, I mean, there's different times where it set in, but I think even the first game I went to uh, as a scout, it was like the first game I'd been to it at the same location i'd been to many games for for media and such um and it wasn't actually that much further down the seat wasn't actually much further down which was comforting to an extent but i watched you know i worked the first game sorry not watch worked the first game and a couple of scouts were kind of chatting right as the game was ending and you know including me in the conversation but what they were talking about and saying was so different than what i was seeing in the game and i was like I'm, I'm way out of my element here. Like, this is, this is scary. This is, I'm going to be awful with this. And over time you develop confidence and you become more comfortable, but that was the, whoa, like this is real. Cause they're asking my opinion and, and it's not the same as theirs, but at least, you know, you're part of that conversation. And it it, it, it became, it was, it, it was, it was very cool. Right?
0: And so that, those, those other scouts that you were rubbing shoulders with after the game were they all of the same opinion or had, like in that certain that like, does, do they all see the same? Were you the only one who wasn't seeing it different that was seeing it differently or were they all seeing it differently?
1: Great question. At the time I thought I was the only one seeing it differently and they were all seeing it the same. And then over time you realize that almost every single person sees it differently. Okay. Which is the value you bring to the organization. You hope at least, you know, I mean, some people can say, okay, Connor McDavid is great, but it's really not that it's and. The, the head scout for Florida out um, tour that I was working with said to me, like, you know, you could go to a game and I could go to a game, the same game and come up with two entirely different reports. And that was true, by the way, that happened to a few of the guys. I'm talking about me with other guys I worked with and it's not to say I was right or they were wrong, but you get different opinions. Yeah. And so at the beginning, I, I never thought like that happened. I thought, okay, the, you identify the guys and that's but that's not the way it is
0: ah that's cool that's interesting to hear that that you know you can go into this and bring your own set of your own set of uh of, of goggles to the to the game and sort of you know let your own lens i should say and really interpret it differently but you could be watching different players like when i watch hockey rich you know you you're there, there's there's what there's 12 players on the ice all together at any given time It's you know when you're following you want to watch the puck, but really it's more fun to watch the players, right? And it's but it's tough. It's tough to keep track and assess every player's performance at the same time. So when you're when you're there scouting and you know that you have to write a report at the end of the at the end of the at the end of the game, are you how many players can you effectively scout in a single game?
1: That's a great question, Uh, and if you ask different pro scouts, you'll get different answers and i think the range is probably between 10 and 20 is the most yeah. consistent range you'll see
0: so i mean you've got 40 players on the benches altogether, and you're basically gonna scout 25 to 50 percent of them in an, in a single game exactly wow that and, and that's a lot
1: it's a lot and that was really overwhelming i actually it's interesting that was overwhelming in any case but i found it exceptionally overwhelming doing the American Hockey League to start. Because most people who are hockey fans will watch NHL games. Casual or not, you'll watch NHL games and you'll know most of the players, at least the big players. So, you know, for example, if it's the Edmonton Oilers, you may not know the third and fourth line guys and the fifth and sixth defensemen, but you're learning those names. My first American, and I had been to American Hockey League games, but my first American Hockey League game that I scouted, I looked down and I knew... Of some guys but I don't think I had seen more than two guys play before so there's 16 guys on one team and then 10 guys in another that I hadn't seen so you're just like well where do I start yeah that was really overwhelming and over time you get to know the league and the players and it becomes more comfortable but that first few games probably the first two months of American hockey league play you're really trying to get your bearings
0: yeah, I bet. Okay, that's cool. All right, I want to say hi to my buddy Jason Pringle. If he has Wednesday off, looking forward to seeing the show. Jay also always so Jay's a buddy of mine. He lives in Banff, Alberta. Uh, you know, ski ski country, beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, and um, he's a chef out there, so he'll he'll always chime in during his break and say, "I got I got a ten minute break. I'm going to watch sports cars live. Love it, Jay. Thanks for joining the card collector. Get to see you as always, my friend. Bowel five ball says cool story about becoming a scout. Billy, also known as Cardboard Nostalgia, says, which player not drafted by Florida did you think was going to be great but ended up being a horrible draft bust? Billy, that's very astute because we, we we have that question coming. But you know what, Rich? To the extent that you have something in mind right now, what, can, can you can you answer that one?
1: That's a good question. So which player not – I don't do amateur, but which player not drafted by Florida – I didn't do amateur. Which player not drafted by Florida did you think was going to be great but ended up being a horrible draft bust? I wouldn't say so far that, you know, I think Jesse Pulley um, I wouldn't say is a horrible draft bust because I think that's too early and that's not somebody that uh, Florida had the um, ability to take because yeah, I think he went before any of, uh, of our picks. He did before any of uh, our picks that year. But um, when I saw him play early on in uh, the American Hockey League his first year, um, he was pretty good. So I would be fool to tell you that i thought things would kind of go sour and he'd go back to finland for a couple of years and now he's coming back he could very well succeed but that was a player that you're like okay he's you know 18 19 years old really skilled and looks like he could be a really good player
0: yeah okay there you go billy and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that kind of discussion a little bit later so rich let's uh let's switch into cards just a little bit because you know you're not a card collector or investor per se but you do have some experience with cards so Tell us a little bit of, about your experience with, with hockey cards, even when you were younger, and kind of where you maybe kind of stopped being interested in it. Just take us through. Give us a bit about your history in cards. People want to know.
1: Well, my, my history in cards really probably starts from your card shop. Yeah. So your card shop, which is probably, well, it was a stone's throw basically from where I'm doing the show right now. And I yeah. drive by there, you know, three, four, five times a week. And I think about it every time I drive by JJ's and that's I remember going there and you running the shop, which you were kind of like super young and advanced to be doing that. And so I was collecting, started collecting cards then, and uh, it was just across the street from where I went to school too. So it was super convenient to go over there after school, you know, 4 o'clock, and uh, collect cards and you know buy Beckett's and all that stuff. So I still have a ton of cards, which and I unfortunately don't know enough about them, and they probably have no value, which I. Readily admit it, you know. Uh, but I have a ton of cards and sets uh, at my mom's place, and I think that, you know, collecting what the '91 like Upper Deck set and then co- collecting so many different cards. And I'd love for you to go through and tell me this is all worthless, but it would still yeah. be cool. To, it would still be cool to go through with you because it relive the experiences. So I was really, really into it for a few years for sure. And uh, you know, your interest in it because you know had an impact on me for sure so uh I unfortunately don't uh I don't collect now and obviously as you know but it's uh it's that's kind of my history in it
0: okay no cool it's nice to whenever I have a guest which is you know every Wednesday and Saturday it's always nice to hear their their involvement or their history in the hobby kind of when they first got involved and is there any is there any specific reason why you don't collect? And I know there's lots of things going on in life. I, I know you've got a career, you got a family, all these things. But is there anything like what? And I'm asking this because most people I have on the show are card collectors, but you're not. And that's that's just, that's totally fine. But what would it take to get you to be one or why are you not a card collector? Did you lose interest? Do you not see the value? What what kind of any any comment on that?
1: You know, it's really interesting. I would honestly say my relationship with you and knowing how much information and how detailed it is, and how knowledgeable you are, was probably more intimidating to be casually into it because you're like, okay, I need to know my stuff, and I'm so far behind the curve that, like, okay, where do I start and what do I what do I do? So largely because of that, because you know, if if, if I was you know dealing with with somebody who was really casual and you know you have guys who have certain cards and i have buddies who have certain cards whether or not they have ma- much value at all but you had so much information that i was like well i can't catch up to him how how can i start collecting now
0: yeah that is that's 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 a fair comment i mean you know a lot we the hobby has been exploding lately so many new people coming in and what they are doing is they're they're they're, they're scavengers for information and knowledge and trying to they're trying to catch up, just like you mentioned, you know, they're, and I'm sure it's intimidating, but they are trying to catch up. And it's kind of cool to see so many people come in, want to say hello to my friend, Andy Greenham, Andy, welcome to the show. Good to see you, my buddy. So Rich, on, on that same kind of line, you know, you're not a collector, but I want to play the, if you were a collector game for a second, have you ever scouted a player and believed in him so much that if you were a collector? you would have gone heavy on him. This question actually came from one of my, one of my viewers and a a past guest and a a fellow co-host on hobby hotline, a rich Klein, a a hobby veteran. Um, But he asked that question, you know, have you ever scouted somebody believed in him so much that had you been a card collector, you would want to go buy their cards.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting because you get in scouting, you get like married to players to a degree and, I always tried to make sure I wasn't doing that. So if there's guys or two that come to mind, but I think the overwhelming thing for me, and maybe this is like this for you in terms of in- investing in the card card uh, business is part of our, uh, 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 one of my mentors and an older scout once said to me, if you can't get married to guys, like you can't be arguing for players that you liked and just get so rigid about it because you want to be right right you know so it's not a direct answer and I'm, not, I'm not avoiding the question um, you know a, a player that I always thought was a really good player and um, I've always liked is actually uh, is uh, Andre Kasha on Boston and not a super well-known guy and things like that and so that's the players on Boston now he's on Anaheim years ago okay. uh, or up to I guess recently but the idea the idea being is you can't get too married to guys because then you're becoming biased right and you're trying to argue for a player and make sure and and you probably get this with cards too you hang on to guys too long because you want to be right oh yeah you know and so it's 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 hard to make sure that you know like that's the biggest thing i found scouting super hard is this is the thing when you if you look at stats online and stuff and you guys see these career arcs that are going down, it's super hard to see a guy play eight, seven, six, ten times in a year and pick out that he's actually declining like that. You see what I mean? Yeah. So getting into arguments about him. So my guess what I'm trying to tie that back is to is a year ago that player was a player that you were fighting for. And you can't see the next year that he's not actually what he was because you're so married to the idea of him succeeding because then you'll be right.
0: Right. You know, I, I wonder. Kind of, I'm thinking about Steven Stamkos for a second because Steven Stamkos came into the league, you know, guns ablazing, had a great first ten years of his career, and now he's got injury issues. And but he was a he was a player whose cards were on fire. He was he was hot. He was as hot as Connor McDavid has been well maybe just less a degree or two but he was super hot in the hobby and now you know his cards don't sell for what they you know they're not competitive with with today's younger players who are at the point of their career that he that he was at in the early 2010s let's say he came in his rookie year was 0809 you know he his first five years were amazing and now you know Thankfully, he got to play in one of the Stanley Cup final games. Luck- luckily, skillfully, you know, and you know, got to score a goal and all that, and was a big part of the of that team in the dressing room. I'm sure, but a guy like that, you know, his cards are just they're out of favor right now with most of the hobby. And you know, is he going to be a Hall of Famer? Maybe. Is is there potential for investment in a, in cards of his now? Maybe. But is he is he the key question? Is is he going to come back? You know next season or the season after and become that is he going to be a 40 goal scorer again is he going to lead the team or are they being led by Braden Point and, and uh, Nikita Kucherov nowadays is, is he do they need him to be the old Steven Samko so I'm kind of thinking I'm just that, that just kind of popped my mind that you know it's one thing to say how a player is going to do but in hindsight looking back at what they've done it's like you know what like you're saying don't get married to a player like that But then as a collector, we think to ourselves, well, okay, I bought him when he was hot. So if I sell him now, I'm going to take a loss. So I don't want to do that. But the other thing is, you know, as collectors, a lot of time we want to hold on to these guys anyway, maybe hold one card, but sell some others. It happens all the time. You see people going in and out of cards all the time based on how a player is doing. And I think it might make more sense to get out of a player in the decline of his career versus, uh, you know, getting out of him you know, just because he has a poor rookie season, you know, maybe give him a little bit of a longer chance to to settle in and and get a feel for the league and and be able to perform to his potential. Okay, good discussion. Yeah, um, Let's talk a little bit more about scouting, though, you know, so you've said a couple times already tonight that you are not an amateur, you, you're not an amateur scout, you're a professional scout. So describe to us, what's the difference between an amateur scout, a professional scout? What is the, what does a day in the life look like um, in terms of uh, in terms of the the difference the different roles, we just had a question come in right now from Brent Terman, though. So I'm going to bring that first. So sure. hold that thought. Brent says, "Can Richard comment about the importance of player development that needs to occur after they are scouted and drafted?"
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's probably the, the most understated uh, part of an organization, and I think organizations do that so differently. So in terms of how do you bring your player along? Does he get better in terms of skill-wise? Does does he have the proper uh, psychological help? Uh, what are expectations for the player? Uh, how does the organization want to build its development system? You know, you know. One of the things, Jerry, you'll see a lot is there's a you know some American League teams that always want to win, so a lot of veterans getting paid big American Hockey League money. Some other teams don't care about that at all, and they really just want to develop their young players. So that's you know importance of player development. Good organizations, like for example Tampa Bay Lightning, you mentioned them earlier, so it's an easy reference. But the players you talked about, Braden Point, Nikita Kudrov, you know these aren't top ten first round picks, no. right? So how are you bringing along those players? And sure, you have you know headmen and you have Stamkos, but you need the other guys too, and. You have to have them to complement your system. And I think what Tampa has done really well in terms of player development is the transition from Syracuse uh, to Tampa is pretty seamless. And the expectation and the style of play and the attention that the players get, um, that's a super important aspect. And I think that goes to, when you're talking about cards and you're talking about identifying players to succeed, check out the organization that they're a part of. Uh, it may take them an extra year to post. know to post those numbers that you want but if that's because the organization is so good and they have too many good players you can at least have more assurance that they're probably going to succeed
0: okay that's awesome Uh, okay thanks brent for the question great question rich great answer so the next question i I love this next question comes in from billy i love this question because it speaks to how we as collectors that are not professional scouts approach the hobby oftentimes so Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Let me bring it up. He says, do you find analytics and underlying statistics to be beneficial when scouting a player? And would you rely on them in place of watching in person, which is what we we often, you know, as collectors, we we judge a player based on watching them in person. But we also judge a player based on their their main statistics, stat line goals, assists, points. A little bit of plus minus, which I know a lot of people say isn't important, but you know the stat line that shows up in front of you is what you're what you're really using. So, can you speak to that or to, to to Billy's question here? Because I think it's a it's a it's a great question. A
1: really good question, and I did find it very beneficial to. Uh, know that information and prepare and have an idea, you know, what are the underlying stat- statistics and um, I know there's a vast array of them um, and which analytics do you think are important and how does that translate for that player? Um, it can be more important to a degree in the American Hockey League because um, maybe those stats aren't as readily available or as checked out as much. Now, would I rely on that in place of watching them in person? I think they complement each other, so I wouldn't say that I'd rely on them um rather than watching in person. But I also can't say concretely that if you relied on that and not watching in person, that you'd be any more accurate or incorrect than if you did it the opposite way. Like, again, not getting married to, you know, it needs to be scouting and that's it. And you can't... No, these two things complement each other. I will say, though, that I found it helpful to know those underlying statistics when evaluating the player. But... I think for my role, which was a professional scout and not higher up in management, I don't know if I want to know that information before I scout the player.
0: Uh could bias you, right? Exactly. Yeah. You
1: know, you're paying me to tell you what I saw. And then you can have that information and that can complement, you can make a decision, you're a decision maker, and you can use that, my information, if you find it valuable, and the statistics, if you find it valuable, to play into your decision. So I think at a higher level, it's more important So I would do it. Um, There's times I tried to veer away from it. There was times I found it valuable, but I thought I had to watch because you don't want to look at that and say, okay, that player is good because if you see him and you don't think he's good, then are you going to put your blanks on the line when you're talking about a player in a meeting and it's a really important decision for the team and they want your input.
0: Yeah. Interesting stuff. Okay, very cool. So let's step, let's go back to the question that I was in the middle of asking you before those last two excellent questions came through, which was, you know, what's the difference between being a professional scout and an amateur scout? What does a day in the life look like? How is it different for you uh, versus your your colleagues who were the uh, the amateur scouts?
1: So yeah, so really good question. I didn't travel as much as as the other pro scouts that uh, I worked with. They saw more games than me. They were just these guys, the pro scouts can be on the road. Some of them can be on the road 25 nights, 25 nights a month, not a year, a month. Uh, but professional scouting, a lot of it, especially in the central and western area, which is where I I was, is, is, is travel by plane. In and out, in and out. You might go to a place and see a few games, but you're always hopping around. So the travel is so different than it is for amateur because amateur, it's often driving everywhere. And so it's a grind, you know, you may say, oh, it's a grind to go to Red Deer and a grind to go to Lethbridge, but it's not, you know, sexy to fly to Dallas, wake up the next morning, fly to San Jose, wake up the next morning, fly to San Diego and then drive around California for three days. You know, yeah. California sounds great, but you're on the freeways all day or you're sleeping in your hotel. Yeah. So uh, the lifestyles are very different. And I think the responsibilities are also different. Um, You know, you mentioned, i tie it back to what you mentioned before. You know, how many players are you watching? I didn't do amateur scouting, but to my knowledge, while speaking to our guys who did it and other guys around the league, amateur scouting is a different process because usually you're going to see a team that has probably no more than three or four, five NHL kind of scoutable players. Right. So they really want big time reports on the top guys. Whereas for professional scouts, especially in the National Hockey League, all the guys you know are good enough to be in the National Hockey League. They're uh, so there, really, exactly. So you're really trying to distinguish between them and their roles, and they want more reports on more players.
0: Sounds good. So, um, and and I find that I find that fascinating because we just think of scouts as scouts. You don't really recognize. Uh, well, I do anyway. I won't speak for everybody, but that's kind of what I how how I view it. And you almost think that. Well, okay. Wh- you're a scout, you're going to scout all players, not, you know, you'll scout for the, you'll scout the amateurs for the upcoming draft, maybe in the second half of the season, maybe you'll scout for the, you know, the pros early in terms of looking at trades and other moves you might make.
1: There are some guys who do both. They're very rare. They're usually like right-hand men to the big, big decision makers. Um, But there's, Generally, a school of thought that you can't hop league to league because then you have no context for the for the quality of play and for how you know how good guys are. So you see the USHL, then you see the um, you know then you see the WHL, and then you like that. So usually in the amateur ranks, guys have regions like they do in pro. But okay, you're a Western Hockey League scout or Ontario Hockey League scout. You'll do some crossover work, but that's your jam, and you're going to cover all those teams.
0: Makes sense. Okay, we have another question that came in from Andy, and it's uh, you'll get a little kick out of this, Rich. He says two players that come to mind: Casey Middlestat, and I. That's the chuckle because uh, Andy, we were, we've already, we, we have Casey Middlestat on the agenda tonight already, believe it or not. Anyway, Casey Middlestat and Ryan Donato both were fairly highly touted, and one has a bit of a disappointment, and one a complete flop. Do you think they were both rushed in too quickly? Do you think they still have good potential, or has that stage passed?
1: So in terms of rush too quickly, um, I think you'd see probably that argument more so for Middlestad than for Donato. Um, you know, I haven't seen Middlestad play as much as I have Donato. So I'd feel more comfortable talking about Donato. Um, and Middlestad's still young, but I think that goes to development to a degree, right? In terms of success. Now, when you talk about development, Donato is going to a team, has gone to a team that's pretty good at developing their players. in in, in my view, San Jose. So you have a player that um, is pretty highly touted, uh, not to the same degree as Middlestad. Um, I, I don't know if Donato was rushed too quickly or just hasn't found that right spot. And you get fit is so important too, right? So San Jose has a need and he fits their need plus didn't have a high acquisition cost. So it's actually a pretty good setup for him, I think. It also comes with very little to no pressure. Like he goes to San Jose, what's the expectation? Does the media care? For middle stat, this this is back to you know organizations and development and pressures and structures. Um, if you're in Buffalo, which is the equivalent to basically of a Canadian city in terms of following, and you're such a high pick, if you have a step back after you're elevated, all eyes are on you, and you know that, and. You know, if the American Hockey League team, which is in Rochester, which is a short drive away, it's tough to get out of that fishbowl. So I'm not saying he can't do it, but I'm saying the expectation levels are different for both of them. And I think that probably has an impact on whether or not they'll succeed.
0: Okay, there you go. So you mentioned fit and how important that can be. and It it, kind of triggered a question in my mind, you know, around scouting, like fit Chemistry. You, we hear about chemistry all the time in all professional sports. How do you scout for chemistry in a player? How do you how do you determine if that player is going to fit into your team?
1: Really good question. I, I, it is that's a really good question. I, I think so. That comes from the top because you're going to have guys that you like. And you're going to want you know write good positive reports on them. But really, it's what is the top guys who are the decision makers. What do they think you need? And then you have to make really look at it through that prism. Okay, this is what we need. I need to identify this type of player. And in terms of chemistry, I think chemistry um, is largely due to to smarts. Like I think it's it's not a coincidence that a lot of you know good players have chemistry with a bunch of other players because they're smart and they can adjust. You know, sometimes I think hockey is almost looked at as too complicated. You know, I mean, player can go to another team in a trade. Play the next day, succeed, succeed for the rest of the season. How much of an adjustment was there in terms of the actual hockey playing? So.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, you think about guys that have played well together and they just have that chemistry, whether it's Gretzky and Curry or Korea and Solani, McDavid and Dry Go ahead.
1: So, and, and, but all those points, and that's true because they all have tremendous chemistry. But I would say that all of those guys would have had chemistry in their careers with other players as well.
0: Yeah. I wonder how much, and how much of that is based on unselfishness?
1: I think a lot. That's, that's really true or an exceptionally unselfish player and an exceptionally selfish player. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, you know, Nicholas Backstrom and Alexander Ovechkin.
0: Yeah. Great example.
1: Totally unselfish and, and not selfish, but a shooter. Yeah. And so, they complement each other. And so that chemistry, you know, people may say, well, Nicholas Backstrom, you know, for not always played with Ovechkin, but for periods of time has played with him and he's benefited from it. It's like, well, yeah, but the other players also benefited from it. And you, if you cater your style to the player you're with, that shouldn't be a negative.
0: You know, in the hobby, the selfish player gets all the hobby love and the unselfish player gets much less of it. You know, Ovechkin is one of the most popular players as far as hockey cards go and Backstrom is an afterthought for the most part. I mean, he was he was hot in his early years in terms of the hobby, but now it's like, ah, eh, no one really unless you're a Capitals fan or you're a Backstrom collector, you know, the general public doesn't really care much about having a Backstrom card in their collection. And again, I don't mean to speak for the whole hobby. I'm just kind of these are my perceptions, so I hope everyone in the audience understands that. I'm not putting down anyone who collects Backstrom. I think he's a wonderful player and a very unselfish player. And everyone, every team needs a player like that. And obviously, he was critical in helping them win a Stanley Cup. So here's another question from Facebook. Uh, can you ask Richard if two players come to mind for him that really developed far beyond what he thought was possible? So that's one you might have to think about for a second.
1: Well, when's a local player here for for the Jets? Like, I would be lying to you if I thought that, if I told you I thought Mark Schweifley would be as good as he's become. Like, let's, let's be clear, I did not think that uh, he has uh, turned into a tremendous player. Not that I didn't think he'd be a good NHL player and a top six player, but the player he's become, um, you know, a 30-40 goal scorer who's really dedicated to his craft and become better. And so that was the idea of, you know, kind of, we talked about before getting married to what your idea of a player is. It's like, no, that's not what he is. He's better than that, and you weren't right. So what did you know about, what did you not see about that player that made you miss that. So he would be one uh, that comes to mind right away. And I'm trying to think um, of another player. And give me a second on that. Put
0: it on the back burner. No yeah, problem. Give
1: me a second on that.
0: That's fine. Put it on the back burner. Uh, Andy says, after a player is drafted to the NHL, do you stop paying attention to them?
1: So, that's when I start paying attention to them. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's so that's that transition. So basically, I, and I didn't answer your question clearly enough earlier. Basically, your pro scouting is twenty h plus. Okay. And your amateur guys are up to twenty. Okay. That's a little simplistic, but that's kind of the way it is. Okay. So you know, twenty, you're done. Uh, CHL. You could still be playing in NCAA, but you're in the AHL if you you know born at the right time of the year, and you get started. So it's kind of a pass off. And that's when you really start paying attention to the guys. You'll go to, you know, the, a lot of the pro scouts will go to the rookie tournaments at the beginning of the year, and that'll get them acclimated with some of the new players.
0: Okay, cool. We're getting some great questions coming in. So here's the next one. I might just ignore my notes for the rest of the show here with all these questions coming. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, uh, YouTube handles out there. Anonymous YouTube user wants to know, who do you think is the best player in the NHL, excluding their teammates, the organization they play for, et cetera?
1: well the best player in the NHL excluding teammates and organization is still Connor McDavid I mean that's the obvious answer so I'll give I'll put that one I'll give you that one but um in terms of other players excluding their teammates and the organization they play for so I think you're probably looking at you know McDavid is your forward I think probably Victor Hedman is your defenseman um there's no, I don't, you don't think you go too off the board here. And, and, and Nathan McKinnon is probably your other forward. That's uh, you know, yeah. Like these guys are just dominant players. So, I mean, sure they play with good players. You mentioned dry settle, which obviously they broke up for a period of a large period of time. And it's led to a lot of success. Um, and McKinnon plays with tremendous players in Colorado, but he's a tremendous player and he's carried them without you know, that help before. And you know, you take him out of, I'll, I'll, you know what, I'll show you on that answer because the question is interesting, including their teammates in the organization they play for. This doesn't fully get to that point, but how did Tampa play two years ago without Victor Hedman in the playoffs? Right. 4 against Columbus. How do they play with him in the playoffs this year? Cup. So yeah. is that the only difference? No, but that's a hell of a difference.
0: And did he not win the Con Smythe in the playoffs? Yeah. He won the most valuable player. So I think he did. If he didn't, he was in the running. And the thing is in Rich, the, the thing is that these this question is asked to you with from the collector's perspective. It's like who's the best player in the league? Who should I be collecting? because a lot of us aren't professional scouts. So sure. uh, like you said, McDavid's the obvious answer. And after that you know, Crosby, of course, but he's winding down his career. He's just you know he's been he's been in the league for 15 years already. So it's like we're looking for who's the next guy to carry the torch other than mcdavid oh, yeah. and to me it's definitely nathan mckinnon but jump in
1: petterson in vancouver is an exceptional player
0: petterson in vancouver
1: yeah. so exceptional a, player,
0: and that's the kind of answer that i'd, I'd be yeah. uh, looking to hear um andy goes on to say well which rookies are po are poised to do really amazing this year who are under the radar right now do you have any uh, opinions on that
1: i have to give that one more thought um I have to see the list in terms of the rookies, especially with this year. And the. And I don't mean to avoid the question, Andy, but this year with the pandemic, like who's going to be playing where and all that stuff. But I can shoot Jared and answer on that after.
0: Sure. Okay. We'll get back to that one. Uh, Zach says, are pro scouts allowed in opposing team practices? Just asking, since many teams have open practices, unlike baseball and football, if so, what are the differences between scouting practices versus games?
1: So that's a really good question. I'm, I wasn't a guy who was going to to practices regularly i do know guys who go on the road and would go to practice uh usually you're allowed in um it is not a big deal uh i've heard of occasions where you're not but that's a good question zach and usually it's pretty loose um oftentimes if you're a scout you're going to the game that day so you're really only seeing a game day skate so you might go, I know guys who go to get a feel for the coach or just for the players and the mood and just get, get into the groove themselves. Um, it would be more valuable if you're in a city for a prolonged period and they're actually having a hard practice. Yeah. But those would often be in the NHL at the practice facility now, you know, on an off day, because these guys all have their own practice facilities. So uh, that might be more of an old-fashioned thing than it is now.
0: Okay. Fair. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this next question Andy poses because you were a professional scout, not an amateur scout, but he wants to know who was the biggest steal in the most recent NHL draft. Do you, do you have an opinion on that at this point?
1: You know, I don't do that. And that's the thing is the, that difference between pro and amateur. I mean, you're watching pro, you're not watching amateur guys. Um, and it's like, that is a dedicated craft that these guys go to hundreds of games a year. Um, but I will say the one thing that always stood out with me about being at the drafts and stuff is, um, you know, every team thinks that they have the steal. <laughs> like, you know, you hear them on TV and they're like, oh, we, we can't believe he fell. Like It is that way too behind the scenes. Like, yeah. Everybody can't believe they got the guy that they got. So um, that's, that's tough to say. And I can't say because I don't know firsthand because I haven't seen these players.
0: Fair, okay, no, but you you still had some great a great answer there, Andy. Hope that's uh, satisfactory. I love I love the fact that every team thinks they get a steal. So that's nobody awesome. goes out
1: after the draft and says, "Oh, we had a terrible draft." Like that just, it doesn't happen. You know, maybe a guy or two you wanted wasn't there, but like the lists that they make are long, right? So it's not like the next guy on your list is still somebody you wanted.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Paul Cashman says, uh, Can you speak at all about Kyler Yamamoto of the Edmonton Oilers? His play after being called up this year far exceeded what I'd assume was likely. Do you have any uh, intelligence on uh, Kyler Yamamoto?
1: Yeah. You know, he, uh, I mean, you should certainly benefit playing from a really good player with, with Dry Seidel. Um, but, you know, he was a player who kind of you know, succeeded early, needed to step back development wise, and then came and played really well. And so I think for Yamamoto, there's two things. One is I think Ken Holland has really put an importance on development um, and slowing down the development of players, meaning not rushing them to the National Hockey League before they're ready. And, and Jay Woodcroft's done a really good job with Bakersfield and developing players. So that goes back to player development. And the other point I'd say is Kyler Yamamoto would not have played, in my opinion, in 2004, Calgary-Tampa. But the way the game is played now, his skill set and his willingness to go into dirty areas um, make him a player more likely to succeed, and that is, I think, one of the reasons why he has had success recently.
0: Okay, very cool. Uh, Billy says, "How would you rank the professional leagues around the world in terms of talent? Uh, the NHL, the KHL, the AHL, any others?"
1: I think, it, I think the way he has it's right. NHL is greater than KHL, which is greater than AHL. I think that's the consensus. Uh, I didn't see any KHL games my time I didn't go to Russia or wherever they play outside of Russia. That's part of that league. Um, But the uh, American hockey league is a really good quality league. And uh, and I think that for your collectors looking at who's succeeding in that league at a really young age, like here's an example, like Dennis Gurionov, right. You know, with Texas stars, Dallas, Dallas. and you, and you see guys, you know, his Rick bonus, goes up, does a great job coaching. But one of their uh, assistant coaches, Derek Laxtell, who's actually from Manitoba, he comes and joins the assistant coaching ranks when Jim Montgomery gets let go. So why is that relevant? It's relevant because when you coach the guys in the American Hockey League, you're more comfortable with their skill set and to be able to deploy them in, in situations to succeed or advocate for them to the coach. And conversely, um, the players more likely to be more comfortable in an elevated environment because he knows the assistant coach behind the bench who knows why he's good and why, what he succeeds at more, more specifically.
0: Cool. No, that make, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, another question from Facebook. How do you gauge attitude? And if someone is known for having a poor attitude, does that affect your scouting report?
1: Super nuanced answer so some may be off the ice reports talking to people around the team the organization the city whatever it may be maybe as detailed as that um it also may be as detailed as watching body language which is super subjective but it does have an impact uh because you don't want to be the guy who recommends the player who doesn't fit into the locker room um for really negative reasons so you know in terms of how do you gauge? well that's really watching the the details of the player um there's been players over the years that's attitude, I don't want to mention them, but players over the years that's attitude hasn't stood out in a positive way. And that really lasts with you, you know, and I think it lasts with you, especially if it doesn't happen when they're 21, it happens when they're 26.
0: You know, I think about a player like Max Domi, who's, seen, who's been moving around lately, and I wonder if it's an attitude problem. He's, I've seen him interviewed. He seems like a happy-go-lucky guy, seems like a real down-to-earth fellow. But wh- why does Montreal let a guy like that go to Columbus in return for Josh Anderson, who, in many people's opinions, was way overpaid for, signed for way too long? This could bury the team salary cap wise, long term sort of thing. Is a play like wh- when we see this, should we be thinking attitude problem? Should we be thinking project? Or should we be thinking fit? It was not a fit in Montreal, a better fit in Columbus, and the player going the other way, same thing.
1: I think that's subjective to a degree i think there are some managers who would say like okay he's moved away around you know he's moved around too much too quickly something's up and i think there's other managers that say well all that stuff's overrated he's way too skilled we can get him for a bargain basement and we can make him better like i think one of the things is is that most teams think they can make a player better than the player is elsewhere you know what i mean so yeah. um that's the kind of guy. So, so I think there's some managers who would say, Hey, there's an opportunity there to get a guy for less than he's worth. There's other guys who would say, I don't want the trouble because if he's, if, if we get him on a deal, maybe it's not a deal. and If we trade more than what we think is fair value, that's a risk. that I don't want to put my name beside."
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair. Thanks for that. Uh, what are the top three arenas you've ever been to, to watch a game?
1: I like that. That's a good one. Um, The nicest arena in the league...
0: This is an easier question.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's an easier question. The nicest arena in the league is Edmonton. Second nicest that I've been to. The second nicest arena in the league that I've been to is is Las Vegas. Um, So I would say those were the top two arenas in terms of being nice. The best atmosphere... There's some great atmospheres I've seen in, in, in National Hockey League, but you wouldn't believe the best atmosphere... One of the best atmospheres, I shouldn't say the best, one of the best is Friday night or Saturday night hockey game in San Diego, the American Hockey League. They have a uh, an older sports r- rink, but it has about 14,000 seat capacity. The place is packed. The fans are super into it. And because it's an old building, the scouting seats and the broadcast seats are basically amongst the fans. So you're sitting there in the environment. And I say Friday and Saturdays because I think it's Friday, at least when I was there last. It's a uh, $3 Bud Light night. So, you know, I can't drink while I'm working. So I go down and buy a water. Water is 4 bucks, So beer is literally cheaper than water at a San Diego uh, uh, golf game.
0: That's pretty funny, you know. and it, But I find it interesting and almost... It, almost unbelievable to a degree simply when you say it's packed 14,000 people yet hockey is not as popular in the U S as the other sports. It, and as far as the hobby goes, hockey is now taken fifth place. Soccer has taken the fourth position as the most transacted sports cards out there after basketball baseball and football. Basketball is far and away number one now. It's just ridiculous how popular basketball is on a global level. But just for your information, hockey has now fallen to fifth, which is very disappointing for me. But, hey, it is what it is, Uh, you know, no big deal. But so I find it kind of interesting that, you know, Southern California would be one of the most exciting places to watch a hockey game, you know.
1: Absolutely. And and the American Hockey League, the amount of, if you look at the NHL and the AHL, there are, I'm going to get the number wrong for sure, but there's the LA Kings, Anaheim Ducks, and San Jose Sharks. So you have three NHL teams. Then you have San Jose has an American Hockey League team. Stockton, one of these teams probably moved and I forgot. Stockton has an American Hockey League team. San Diego has an American Hockey League team. Ontario has an American Hockey League team. And Bakersfield, that's eight professional hockey teams in California. Yeah,
0: so California might be the, the one sort of outlier in terms of the rest of the, the country in terms of hockey popularity and card collecting.
1: And Palm Springs is getting one. It'll be nine.
0: Palm Springs is getting the desert. You know, I mean, we know that Vegas is the desert, but Palm Springs is like yeah. desert when you're driving around there. Okay, here, Andy asked this question and, and before I put this one up there, um, it's kind of funny because I'll tell a quick story. So a couple of years ago, you know, I'm in Calgary, you're from Winnipeg, you came to Calgary to do an Alberta scout scouting trip. You were doing, I guess, probably Calgary, Edmonton, maybe Vancouver as well. And you came in, I don't remember if you stayed at my place, but you spent the day here. I think you had stayed at a hotel, but you spent the day here the next day. And I remember watching you. You sat at my dining room table just upstairs over there. And you were doing your scouting report. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is pretty cool. I mean, you know, my cousin's a scout for the Florida Panthers. And here he's in my house doing a report. You wouldn't let me see it, but, (laughs) you know, he's doing a report and he's going to send it off to the Florida Panthers. I I I always remember that. I always thought that was really cool. But Andy's question is, can you get your buddies into games under normal pre-COVID circumstances?
1: Uh, Usually not. I mean, so Andy, like if you're really experienced and you have more clout than I have, yeah, you can get buddies probably into games fairly regularly. Uh, That wasn't something that I wanted to like stick out and be that guy. They're like, who is he anyways? And why is he asking for a favor? But the guys who've been doing it for a long time, they are able, they put some tickets aside The organizations usually um, for, you know, Friends and family, and all that stuff, and oftentimes players have tickets. And what happens is the players, I think it's part of the CBA, if I recall, they get a certain allotment per game, and oftentimes or sometimes they don't use them. So those tickets flow over to people who can't use them,
0: right? Okay, cool. All right, Legion has a question. He says, How do scouts see novelty plays such as the spinorama and lacrosse style goals? Is it seen as Is it seen as just a gimmick or part of a larger skill set? Great question, I think.
1: Yeah, that. That one's interesting. I, I think you, um, you'll you see it as a part of a larger skill set if you feel like the move is appropriate at the time. If Correct. you see a guy doing it a lot during a game, I think you're going to see it as a gimmick, and you may think that's a negative trait because either the player is trying to draw attention to himself or it's an inappropriate time to do something like that. But if a player at that proper time is able to make a play like that, um, I think usually the scouts will appreciate how skilled you have to be to make a play like that. And that will be a positive note in their report.
0: Cool. All right. Great. Uh, And Andy just says, thanks for the honesty. Of course, Andy, of course. Right, Rich? Okay. another question from Billy. Are there any AHL players you can think of that are elite at that level but cannot crack the NHL? Chris Bork was that guy for a long period of time, sort of as an example.
1: Yeah, you see a few guys like that and they're really good. You know, for example, uh, Chris Terry. As a player like that, and I've seen him in a few years of American Hockey League play in Grand Rapids, and it was on um, uh, the Habs minor league team. Uh, so that's Detroit's minor league team, and then the Habs minor league team. He was a guy who s- consistently could score at that level. Like Chris Bork is a great example, um, consistently score at that level. Uh, another player I saw a little bit, not a ton, would have been uh, Ryan O'Reilly's brother, Cal O'Reilly. So these are guys that consistently succeed at that level. And it's so hard to do that. Like, I know they don't, they get paid really well for being top end AHL players, but at some point for them, they're not getting the call above and they're they're just getting bigger money to play on a bigger role in an American Hockey League team.
0: All right. Cool. Jeff McMahon has a great question. Do you see a lot of Detroit games given that they are a division opponent of the Panthers interested on any thoughts on Tyler Bertuzzi and Anthony Mantha? And I'm actually also interested in this. Cause I've, I've considered putting some money into Anthony Mantha before. And especially after last season, I think he came out and scored four goals in his first game and I had him in a hockey pool. I'm like, okay, I picked this guy. Maybe I got to get a card or two also. And just, just for your own interest, Rich, What's happening in the hobby now is is the influence of fantasy sports on collecting is starting to take hold where people are really going after top fantasy producers, not just goals and assists guys, but, you know, points in fantasy can be calculated in other ways, even daily fantasy DraftKings and that the point, you know, you can get, you can get seven points for a goal, some in some format. So I think people are starting to lean towards that because they know fantasy and that's where they see these names at the top of the fantasy standings all the time. And they're going for cards of those players. But anyway, back to the question at hand. Tyler Bertuzzi, Anthony Manta, any thoughts on these particular players?
1: I'm going to let Jeff down a little bit here because I didn't see a lot of Detroit because I was doing the Western games. And so they're in our division, but it wasn't in, the, in Florida's division. Um, but I didn't see a lot of uh, those players play. You know, I think Anthony Mantha getting his contract was it yesterday or two days ago from the Red Wings, from Steve Iserman, who's you know very, very good manager probably caused me to be more confident than not in his ability but uh, I've seen those players a little bit um, but not enough to give a confident answer unfortunately
0: no problem no problem that's what we, we want honesty you know that that's that's perfect Zach has a, a good question here were you scouting for potential trades or more matchups for upcoming games
1: that's a that that that's a good question and depends on the organization so I was mostly doing um, for trades and free agency That would have been my uh, focus. Um, You'll get some teams will have guys go for matchups for upcoming games. Uh, That won't be as common as you may think during the regular season. Once you get into especially the really good teams that are cemented in the playoffs, you get about 10, 15 games out. Then they'll start narrowing down who they may play and then they'll send guys to do stuff like that.
0: So closer to the end of the season for playoff matchups, yeah, yeah.
1: So you start seeing, you know, for if if, uh, you know if you're a fan and you see scout lists get published for every game, and if you see the same guy at a game, a few games in a row, doesn't live there, that would be your okay. My ten is going up. That they could play in the playoffs. He's there to pre-scout that team for a playoff matchup.
0: Awesome. Tiger Jordan wants to know, how many scouts do teams typically employ? Also, is there competition between scouts per se or protecting of insider information? Uh,
1: So scouts depend on the team. Uh, Some will have, you know, I'll talk about pro scouts because that's really more what I know. Uh, Some will have two or three. Some will have as many as 10 or 12. You know, you're probably going to average about five, five to seven. four to to six, five to seven is probably your more average group. Uh, Now you'll have some guys in management go see some games and such, but in terms of full scouts, like that being their primary job, that would be the number. And is there a competition between scouts? I'm assuming that Tiger Jordans are speaking about uh, scouts from different teams scouting. Um, Like, you know, you're at a game and another team has a scout at a game. Not really. It's pretty collegial, to be honest with you. I think there's more competition at the amateur level than there is at the pro level, Uh, and I think the main reason for that is the amateur guys are often trying to hide, or at least you know, trying not to deceive necessarily, but fly under the radar in in respect of which players they're watching. Because if they go to see a guy play twelve times in a row, another team will know. Okay, that team's really interested in him. We need to trade up to the eighth pick to avoid them picking him with the ninth pick. pro you don't really have that there's so many good players and so many options and uh you're seeing these guys all the time that you know you protect your insider information um but it's a pretty good uh positive environment i have to say for myself the group was the collective group was super welcoming to somebody who didn't have a traditional background uh like many of them did which was playing at nhl or a very high level
0: right okay cool um I want to ask a question about the the draft itself again understanding you are not an amateur scout but you have been to the draft when we see it on tv and even this year in the COVID draft when we saw you know you saw the you saw the broadcast going from war room to war room you know uh versus just a a bird's eye view of all the tables and uh, on the on the floor of an arena what what's going on at the table during the draft who, who are all these people sitting around the table?
1: So you it, it, so you usually have the owners oftentimes there or, or the president and then the general manager and then the, the staff from that, oftentimes the coach as well. Um, most people on the, at the draft table don't really have anything to do with the draft. <laughs> like you'll have some professional scouts sometimes who have nothing to do with the draft. Sure. They're there for trades or there's spots available just to sit down and such. Um, but You're not really you're not really hearing a ton of back and forth as to every pick. You know, you'll hear reactions, but they're not like, and they'll be crossing off the list, but they're not like hotly debating every pick and who to take. There's so much preparation that goes into coming into the draft that these teams are ready to go in terms of who they want to take. So, usually, if they're waiting to use their and using their time on the clock, it's more so because there could be a trade. Um, maybe there's a decision between two players but it's not like they're deciding between six players like, like you're at a hockey draft and you say oh you know uh, which one okay my time's up i'm gonna take this guy and the best job at the draft is to be one of the the, the kid runners that you know you see in the big jerseys who come up to this so those guys are just getting the food from uh, underneath the stands they're bringing it out to all the guys at the table and then they're getting tips for their Going home, you know, so they can walk away with, you know, two three hundred bucks kids and they're the happiest guys in the world.
0: And <laughs> they got a jersey out of the deal too. Exactly. Right on. Tiger Jordan just wants to say answered my question perfectly. Much appreciated. I wanna I want to talk about goaltenders for a second, Rich, because goaltenders are, you know, as as I alluded to in the in the in, in the video description, they're unique. And, you know, it seems to me like goalies are either drafted first overall or they're dra- like I, i.e., Di Pietro, Roberto Luongo or they're drafted very late in the first round or in much later rounds. Um why is it what 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 do teams look at in terms of drafting a goalie? Why do we all, why it's always talked about by the panel during the the trade frenzy. The we're always keeping an eye on who's the first goalie to go. When are they going to take a goalie? What what are the te- and I, again understanding that you're not a an amateur scout but you still rub shoulders with these guys what what kind of insights can you give us in terms of just how how kind of sensitive it is to draft a goaltender and and why does mike milbury love trading up to get a, a, a goaltender at number one
1: so the thing about drafting goaltenders is you have to be right and you know it sounds really simplistic right what do you mean by that well there's only one goaltending position on your roster so if you have a good young goaltender um, and he ends, and you draft another goaltender that ends up being really good, how much value is he giving you? Like, in reality, what yeah, are the chances you're going to draft two really good goaltenders, draft and develop two really good goaltenders, and then find when that other guy gets really good, if your other guy is also really good, he can't. It's not like McDavid and Dreisaitl, where they both play 20 minutes a night. Right.
0: The other
1: guy can't play. He, And then when you get to the playoffs, you know, you saw a little bit could and Bishop with his injury, but like when you get to the playoffs, just usually one guy plays right. Maybe this season with the pandemic and the schedule will be different, but so that's the idea in terms of long-term, like what's our upside. Okay. And then there's so many factors that go into goalies in terms of the structure they play in in junior or college or whatever it may be. uh, Why are they successful? uh, And, their size and to be honest the mental aspect is important for all players but it's so important for goaltenders and it's so hard to predict when you're talking about 18 year old kids like at the end of the day you're talking about kids like 18 you know you as a fan or an employee of a team whatever it may be sometimes you need to go and remember what not just what you were when 18 but just walk down the street and see an 18 year old kid and be like well that's a kid that's the age of the kid who the pressure of the whole city is on (laughs) <laughs> Nobody's twenty twenty one, so they take longer to develop so if you're spending a high pick and they take longer to develop you got to be right and with all those factors it makes it very risky for a manager to select a player especially in the top 10 goaltender unless they're so sure or their guys are so sure he's going to be great and another thing is if the goalie takes longer to develop, it's very possible that the player, the the, the guy who drafts him, won't even be the, the the guy to bear the fruits of his labor.
0: Right. Yeah, you see a lot of goaltenders that don't come into their own until they're old. like Kudobin, a uh, great Dominic Cassick, You you see it you see it kind of regularly throughout the the decades. Goalies mature later. They 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 peak in their early thirties versus a lot of forwards who peak in their mid twenties.
1: Tim Thomas is another one you're talking about there. You would know better than anybody, Mika Kiprasov.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Uh, Legion wants to remind everybody to hit that thumbs up on the YouTube channel, guys, for the video. I greatly appreciate that, Legion. If you haven't subscribed to the video, please do. If you're enjoying the video, hit that thumbs up. I appreciate it. It just kind of makes me feel good. So thanks, everybody, for that. Uh, Billy has a funny question here. Um, Have you ever compared your personal assessment of a player's skills versus a game like EA Sports?
1: You know what, I actually haven't, um, but you know, I hear on the internet about guys, uh, You know, certainly in NFL and, and, and NBA stuff, for their, or NFL especially, when they talk about their ratings. Uh, but that would be a really interesting endeavor. I used to be super into NHL, like, well, obviously, you know, growing up, NHL 94, 95, 96, even later than that. I haven't gotten into it recently, um, but that would be something that I would find interesting.
0: Oh, okay, cool. Glock change. Welcome to the show. Says you can, you can get goalies off the street, which we've seen recently. You know, we saw uh, one play for Chicago, and then uh, Carolina was it the Zamboni drivers played? I mean, we've seen all sorts of of people suit up. Legion goes on to say, only if you're playing the Leafs, <laughs> which is pretty funny because I think one of these guys was it for Chicago. Just be they he beat the Leafs this season like six to two or something like that. Came in in relief, so. Funny stuff. Okay, Um, I want to talk a bit about country of origin for a minute. I mean, we're you know, I'm Canadian, Rich, you're Canadian and Canadians take hockey very seriously. We consider it to be our sport and we're very proud of the players that come out of Canada and make their way to the NHL. And in the up until the 80s, you know, it seemed like, you know, if you looked at the top 10 scores in the NHL, they were all Canadian. Nowadays, you look at the top 10 scores in the NHL you're lucky to see two Canadians in there. You, you know, Connor McDavid's going to be there, but you know, uh, Crosby, maybe uh, Stephen Stamkos, no no longer, you know, Nathan McKinnon's there, of course, but you're not seeing it like you used to, or maybe, you know, two or three or three or four out of 10 versus nine or 10 out of 10. So my question is like, from your perspective, is Canada still the number one player producing nation or is it some, or is it another country?
1: I think Canada still is like, you know, there's for example this past draft there's a lot of Canadian players that went early. I think overall it is, but I think that the marker, Jared, years ago was plus fifty percent. Fifty percent Canadian and the rest it was, you know, what portion were they sharing? I don't think it's like that anymore. You may have the most percentage wise players in the league, but I don't think your dominance is, is that much more. And I think you're seeing a lot of money. First off, the States just has so many more people. But your, hockey's become very expensive. And you have a lot of money in the States. And I think that's your main competitor. I think that's stating the obvious. But they could be coming, coming, and pushing past. Like I, th- I think Canada is obviously doing a very good job of developing talent still. But a um, you know, league like, like the USHL, for example, is getting a lot more attention, certainly scouting-wise, than it used to um, in terms of talent. It's churning through. Um, in terms of development. And that's not even to speak of Europe. You know, there's been stories written about Germany and the development of their players, and uh, they're having high picks. Ottawa's first pick this year, Detroit's first-round pick, early first-round pick the year prior. Uh, So those countries are coming too. And you've seen it in basketball, right? You know, it used to be only the Americans. So And and once it goes, once the game grows, overall, that's what the commissioner and the league wants. But maybe sometimes the fans don't want that if we ever actually got international hockey back, maybe it actually matter, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I appreciate the answer. It's something, you know, we just take such pride in it as Canadians. It's like if there was another player, you know, Jager led the league a few years, and that was, but that seemed to be okay. Jager's just such a likable guy. He played with Mario so long. But, uh, you know, it's like having McDavid at the top of the, well, now it's Dreisaitl this past season, right? But at least you kind of credit McDavid for a lot of that. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is we take a lot of pride in Canada and we want to see a Canadian at the top of the scoring uh, leaders every year, but we're, we're not, we can't assume it anymore. Like we used to when it was Lemieux, Gretzky, 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 Lemieux, Gretzky, and then it was Jagger, you know, and then it went back and then Crosby, Crosby, right? It's, you know, I think you had a year of Stamkos in there. So, okay. Interesting stuff. Joe, welcome to, to the show tonight. Insider perspective are always fascinating. I'm super glad that you're enjoying this, Joe, Andy uh, has a question, says, how old were you when you got your first scouting job? Did you start with an NHL organization with a different role in your early years? And Andy, just so you know, we did sort of cover this before you got here, but that's no problem. Rich, I'll let you answer the question anyway.
1: Yeah, so uh, Florida was the first uh, National Hockey League team uh, that worked for. I did some internships he in, passed in, in the American Hockey League, but not in the NHL. Um, how old was I? So let me just go back. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I shouldn't be forgetting. Uh, So I was 33, 32, actually. Sorry. When I, when I got the gig of Florida, 32,
0: 32 years old when you became a scout for the Florida Panthers. That's pretty young. I mean, I guess it's not that young. And that's a good segue into some of the, some of the people you got to work with. I say, you know, it's not that young because a lot of the scouts are ex NHL players or ex hockey players. And, you know, you worked for the Florida Panthers, so you got to work alongside some pretty well-known guys. Can you tell us a couple of these, a couple of players that you were, you know, you were in meetings with, you had meals with, you traveled with, you chatted with, you have their phone numbers in your cell phone. Who are some of the more well-known players that you considered uh, you considered colleagues and people that you could, you know, call up if you had a, a, a question or a comment or some or whatever it was?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I think the three guys probably that your viewers would know, uh, most would be, um, so I'm, I get into like the hardcore stuff and I, you know, I try to know all, all these, some of these kind of not random, but maybe lesser known, no, known guys. Uh, but the three guys, I think that your, uh, viewers would, would know off the top of their heads pretty easily would be, uh, Chris Pronger worked with Florida for, um, a couple of years and, uh, Berta Luongo worked for the team after, um, uh stop hit he stopped playing and then uh an older player than that who played many years ago in the Summit series Peter Mahovlich, oh who's okay. uh who's like my favorite guy and he know he knows that but um <laughs> but so those would be and, and honestly I'm just gonna tell you like I know those guys some of them bet a lot better than others um but they're all nice people and you know, they're all like me they're all just guys like me and you like they're 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 yeah, sure. They've all scored hundreds of goals or won hundreds of games at the National Hockey League level, and they're not. I'm not like them like that. But they're they're people, and they're nice people, and they treat you like they you know like they, they treat other people, and they don't have. Uh, they're not arrogant guys, you know. They don't. They don't walk around acting like they're big deals. And it was right. and it's and and so you have to you know I'd be lying if I said hey listen there's not a well hold on a second this person's in the room and why do I have any kind of view when they're in the room and what I have to say has, doesn't mean anything. And after a while you have to be like, well, no, you have to show while you're there and hopefully provide value that they think is important. And the, 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 management team thinks is important. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a fun thing. It's a cool thing. And uh, your friends are c- certainly interested in it, right? Like these are guys they grew up, these MVPs, like, you know, or guys who scored big goals and, the 1972 Summit Series, the most popular tournament in Canadian history.
0: Yeah, and even more recently, the other guys you mentioned are both Hall of Famers. I mean, I, I know Pronger is, Luongo will, may, be. Will, be, will be, right? He's sure. one of the most winningest goaltenders of all time, 400-win goalie. When you've been out with these guys, so have you had meals with them in hotels, restaurants, that kind of thing? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah so when, you're, when you've had a meal... Do you notice the other people in the restaurant that recognize these guys? Are they being asked for autographs? And that's that's the first of the double-barreled question. The second question is, did they ever – I'm, I'm going to guess the answers no, but I'm going to ask him. Did they ever talk about hockey cards or signing autographs for card companies? Did you ever hear a player mention that?
1: I didn't hear a player mention that, but they were approached. A couple of them that I've, that I've dined with were approached by fans before whether or not just to chat, uh, whether or not to sign a a jersey or, um, uh, you know, a a hat or whatever it may be. And then at the draft is where you would get the fans who came with hockey cards and such. Um, So let's just say that um, Chris Pronger had a group of people, you know, a group of people who had some stuff paraphernalia waiting for him at the draft, for example, knowing that, you know, he was going to be there and every other player from every other Organization management wise was going to be there as well, yeah so that's when I would see the cards for these guys. And then they, they it's only the big time guys that they're after, right?
0: Like Roberto Luongo and Chris Pronger, two of the biggest times. Exactly. Guys yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul has an interesting question. Are you able to just watch and enjoy a game now, or do you find you watch it differently?
1: I've thought well, about that a lot. I've read. That, uh, Paul, a, that I, I, I like that question. Uh, I've thought about that a lot. I can watch and enga- enjoy a game because I loved, and I, I love watching games and scouting and doing that. Like I, I love when I'm like it's working, but I love it, so it's not work. Yeah. Um, and you do find yourself watching the game differently. If I'm out with a bunch of buddies or a couple buddies having a beer, more casually watching the game, I can find myself kind of just watching it in a more relaxed way. But if I sit down to watch a game, I don't watch it the way I did before.
0: You know? Yeah, that that's cool. That's yeah. that's interesting, right? And and what's the difference? Are is it? Are you just watching the details closer? Are you following specific players more often? How how do you watch it differently now?
1: You're doing both. I think you're following specific players, especially because you've been following these players for a long time now, and you're trying to monitor their progress. And as I talked to you about before, have, are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Are they the same? And your mind's spinning—not spinning, but your mind's going, okay, where are they at? And so that's what you're watching. Um, or I haven't seen this guy in a while. What's his status versus before? You know, it's less so if there's a game on and you've seen both of these teams play, you're still very, a bunch of times, they're still very focused, but it's more so, oh, that guy or this team, I haven't seen this team in a while. I I better get up to date because I don't want to be too out of touch with what's going on there.
0: Okay. Makes sense to me. So uh, we're going to go to this question from Billy. He says, have you ever interacted with a former player scout that was given the job title as a retirement bonus from their former organization and is being a former NHL or beneficial to pro scouting.
1: Yeah. I mean, retirement bonus may be like, I think, I mean, like more of a, the, the air quote there in terms of like, that's the next gig after playing. Yeah. There are guys like that. They could still be very, like, I, we didn't have that situation. Well, necessarily, in our organization, I thought all of the guys who had stopped playing and started working for the team were super engaged in it. Um, so uh, I don't think they, they, they were they, – they never took advantage of that, I guess, if that's something that, that could be done. Um, is being a former NHL player beneficial to scouting? Yes. I don't have that experience, and so I needed to work from here when those guys were here. So right. do I think it was beneficial? Absolutely, I do. Uh, do I think it was determinative in terms of my ability to contribute? I didn't feel that way. Um, but I would be lying if I said I didn't think it was there was a value to it.
0: Okay. No, it makes sense to me, man. Thank you. Thanks, Billy. Hope that uh, answers your question well. So, uh, you know, we're going to wrap this up pretty soon, Rich. We, it's been a great discussion. So thanks so much. Any You guys watching out there, if you have any more questions, fire them away. Um, While we wait for more questions to come in, um, I want to ask you, Rich, you know, some player and we touched on it earlier, but I want to come back to it with some specific players. So, you know, we some players take longer to develop than others. And, you know, as as collectors, we buy a lot of cards in the rookie season and we can be a very impatient group where if that player doesn't perform that rookie year, Those card values will go down, like the market reacts very quickly, and we could sell for a loss oftentimes. You know, when when do you give up on a player? When is the right time to give up on a player? I got, you know, the guys like Bertuzzi, Joe Thornton, Blake Wheeler, these guys took a while to reach their potential. We're not talking about goaltenders anymore. These guys took a while to reach their potential. And when they did, it was like, it was kind of expected for them to reach it. But a lot of people would have been patient, would have sold off their cards, maybe from an organizational perspective, traded the player away. When, when do you give up on a, on a player like that and just figure, you know what? They came out a junior. They got drafted into the NHL with all this potential, all this hype, all this hope. But it doesn't look like they're getting there. What, how, how can we as collectors, what advice would you give us in terms of that?
1: I think organizations hold on too long. Sometimes like collectors do.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Right? Like I I do. I I think that organizations don't want to be wrong about a player. And so they hold on to him oftentimes longer than they should because giving up on him might mean giving up on a personality and a relationship that you've developed, might mean admitting you're wrong, might mean being worried about him succeeding elsewhere. Um, And I think that generally serves as a deterrent. So I think you're more likely. You, know, you talked about those late bloomers. For as many as those guys there's been have there have been, there's probably been 30 guys who haven't cracked it. You know, and okay. then so you're waiting for that one guy. And are you waiting for that one guy because you want to be right? Because if you're right nine other times for cutting the other players and wrong once, you're ahead.
0: Well, for the, in the hobby, you're 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 hanging on to that player because you don't want to lock in a loss. You know, you might buy a rookie card of a player for a thousand dollars or, you know, I'm talking about a cup rookie there, everybody, but if you're talking about young guns, you might buy into a player for $150 in his rookie year. And, you know, three years later, it, the card is selling for $30. You know, who comes to mind is Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Not to say he hasn't had a good career, but he hasn't been a perennial league leader like you thought he was after his first year in the league. So, you know, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. No.
1: My, my question to that would be, So you buy him for 150, I'm using your example, you buy him for 150, he's worth 30. My question for you would be in that fourth year, would you pay 30 for him if you didn't own him?
0: Right, great question. Yeah, great, and that's that's the question. You don't even know what you just tapped into there, Rich. That's the question we should all be asking all the time. It's like, you know, if I, you buy a card and this happened to a lot of people in 2020 because the market has gone up like from 2X to 10X on almost all important cards across the hobby. So it's like, you know, I have a card I paid $1,000 for, now it's worth $5,000. Do I sell that card now? Well, most people would say no, but then you have to ask yourself the same question. Would I buy that card for $5,000 now? Because by not selling it effectively, you're buying it for $5,000 if you just look at the way money works. So I love that you said that, because I think about that all the time in my own collection. And then I come back to the fact I'm a collector, I'm in for the long haul. I'll ride these waves in the short term and stick into to the end of the day. But I think, you know, again, the question being, when do you give up on a player? I'm really asking it because I want to I want to provide some value to the viewers in terms of their cards, because we are a card collecting group. And so, again, I'll ask you to come back to that if you can. Uh, you know, that that's the thing we, we, we may buy the Nugent Hopkins today for thirty dollars because that's a good price for that card. Maybe it's up to 40 now because he is a good player. But, you know, when do you, if you, if you weren't going to sell the card, when, when do you sell it?
1: So I think a lot of it is context. It's okay. Is the player getting opportunity and is the player in, oppor- in his opportunity, if he's getting it, performing at a pretty similar, you know, static level for a long period of time? Because, you know, you talk about those players, like you want them to be getting better peaking, like getting, getting to that peak and that peak age, you know, whether there's arguments, whether it's 24 to 26 or 26, 20, whatever that you can get down, go on that rabbit hole. But the idea being, you know, is your player getting better? And what's the context? So for example, if you're talking about a player who's not getting opportunity, he could be in a situation where if the coach hasn't changed or the organization hasn't changed, maybe it's just that organization. That's an issue. So maybe you don't want to give up on that player, but if it's a player who's played with, on three different lines for the past three years is getting 10, 12, now 15 minutes of ice time and his output, his ratios are relatively unchanged. I wouldn't try and convince yourself he's going to be something that he hasn't been yet.
0: So let me jump. You know, what comes to mind, my local team, the Calgary flames is Sam Bennett, a player that I love watching. I I've seen him change games himself. A couple years ago, a specific game I was at against Colorado he took a run at one of their defensemen and the Flames went, came from being down 3 nothing to winning 6-3. to three. But he's a player that hasn't really found a place. They don't even know if he's a center or a winger. It's the weirdest thing. And I think the guy's got a, you know, he was a fourth overall draft pick, I believe, in the Connor McDavid year. To me, he's got a lot of potential still. But is he just being mismanaged and or miscoached?
1: So let's talk about him for a second. Just, I'm gonna go back to what I was just saying. Have they played him at center? Have they played him at wing? Have they played him on the first line? Have they played him on the second line? Have they played him on the third line?
0: Yeah, it's weird because the guy, the guy when he's when he's at his best, he is a a difference maker as a player. You don't hear about him anymore because you know he he hasn't uh, performed at like a fourth uh, overall draft pick should. But I think he's done great things. I think he's a great role player.
1: Has he played on the power play? Has he played for different coaches? Like you have a lot of those variables and the output. It kind of answers the question. And I think, Jared, another thing is, you know, the fourth overall pick, the third over, that's another thing in scouting you have to get away from. Well, that guy was third overall. He's got to be good. Right. Well, or maybe a team just made a bad pick. Not bad, but maybe the team didn't pick him where he was supposed to go. You know, because you'll see all these articles all the time, redraft from five years ago. It's yeah. totally muddled, right?
0: Every year, yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's it's. I think the teams that draft though the teams that draft guys high are the ones who have a harder time getting rid of them because there's so much invest. You know, for example, if it's a guy you drafted with the fourth overall pick, well, that's four years or three years of scouting him. That's three years of development of him. Is trading him admitting that you didn't succeed? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just trading him because he just didn't work out. But there's so much that goes into it whereas the other team isn't married to that. So that goes back to would you buy him at that price? Like if you right. didn't have that relationship with him, would you buy him at that price? Yeah. Because if exactly. you wouldn't, then you're overvaluing him.
0: Right. Exactly. No, that that makes that makes a ton of sense. Um you know, oh Kirk, shoot. There was something I wanted to say about Sam Bennett it just slipped my mind though. Um Oh, it was that you know, with that player in particular and it happens all the time, you know, all the scouting reports leading into the draft had him pegged as a top five draft pick. You know, okay, Connor McDavid's number one. That's done. But after that, it's like Sam Bennett. Well, I think the Flames felt lucky that they got him at fourth that he didn't get picked third or second. I think that was the year that the the Canucks took a, a finished player, a, like a, a a name like Puljuarvi,
1: Yard-
0: Uo Levy. U- o- Levy, and I think Puljuarvi went. No, maybe it wasn't Puljuarvi, but. Yeah, I was, you
1: know, yeah, was the year before. I might be confusing
0: here. Yeah. But but the point being that you know, Sam Bennett was on everybody's list as a top five draft pick that year. So it's kind of is it an an, an anomaly when a top five draft pick prospect doesn't fit in or make it or turn into what you thought they were going? I mean, it happened we've seen it. That might be a silly question. We've seen it throughout the years with first overall picks as well. So I think, you know, is everybody making a mistake or is the player just peaking when they're 18 or 19 years old?
1: Well, that could be it too. And it could be the style of play. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's myriad of factors in terms, in terms of going into that. The other thing is the draft year, you know, third overall or fourth overall in one year doesn't mean you could be as you could be this 12th overall pick the following year. Is it a strong year? Is it a weak year? Right, so that really is to, is is a, a context dependent as well. That's really tough because how do you know it as a as a collector what a good bad draft year is? I mean, a lot of that is noise. Yeah, if you're comparing it to like the market, a lot of it's noise. Like, who really knows? You know, the guys who are commenting about the players oftentimes haven't seen them play. Yeah. You know, if I had a dollar for every steal of a pick of the people who told me about and around the league of players they'd never seen play, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> right. So, you know, there's, there, it, it's it's tough because these games aren't on TV. It's not like college football where the players are older, more developed, and easier to predict, and every game is on television, and they have beat writers. A lot of these teams don't have writers or they're in-house writers. None of the games are on TV, and you haven't seen them except for maybe a cup of coffee at a World Juniors. And if you've seen a player at the World Juniors who's going to be drafted, usually only the exceptional players play on those teams, and they don't play that much.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah okay let's get to some questions from the crowd uh my man plj says when watching a player are you thinking more about if you appreciate their style of play personally or more on a team needed uh basis
1: both both because i think if you appreciate the player's style you're probably more likely to want to advocate for acquiring him um And then you might put an asterisk and say, I know this isn't our need at the moment, but if it becomes our need, this is a player that I would recommend for our club. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great, great answer. Okay. Tiger Jordan says, how much of a handicap is trying to scout by watching a game on TV versus watching live in person?
1: I think it depends on who you ask. I have a hard time doing that. Um, I, I don't think there's no value. I think there's absolutely value in watching it on TV better than not watching. But I do, don't think it provides the same experience or value to your club as an in-person viewing does.
0: Okay, there you go. Thank you for that. Glock changed. <laughs> he put this comment up a few minutes ago uh, when we were talking about when do you give up on a player? He says the Canucks would have given up on Patrick a two years ago. Let's talk about Patrick a for a second. You know, I, you live in Winnipeg, so you uh, you have some some insights maybe into him. Is this guy going to be a perennial 40 goal scorer or is he going to go down in history as one of the greatest um what's the video game called again which the video game that he's known for playing it's just escaping oh me right I, now.
1: i'm terrible at these video games yeah. uh what's it called? Fortnite. Uh, is he gonna go fortnite. down
0: as being one of the greatest fortnite players of all time
1: i mean i think it'd be tough to bet against him not being that kind of scorer that you mentioned i mean how old is he now 22 years old yeah it's tough to say that he's not going to be that guy. I mean, there may be some flaws in the style and things like that that you don't like or the, or the output in other areas, but it's going to be tough to argue against the, the kind of projection that you just mentioned.
0: I wonder if he's going to be like a, an Ovechkin-type player who just scores these, you know, cannon of, cannons of a goal, of goals from the top of the circle within that circle somewhere. And, you know, he, it's like how do you not – Ovechkin is – he's definitely not a one-trick pony – but how many goals that he's, how, of, of his 600 and something goals, how many have come from that same spot off a of one-timer? Like half of them, at least I got to think.
1: It's like the NBA though, right? Like it's, it, If you know, LeBron James is going to go with the ball. You know what he's going to do and then you can't stop him. Right. That's when you know guys are great.
0: Right. There you go. That's another. So I'm I'm hopeful that Patrick Laine can turn into that. And, you know, I wonder there's been a lot of, he's been the rumor, uh, he's been in a lot of trade talk rumors and I wonder if this would be an example of the Jets giving up on him too early, and then having to watch him become one of the best goal scorers in the league for another team.
1: I mean, they're they're pretty sharp. Like I I I always ask, you know, if you're going to say uh, giving up on a guy too early, which is totally valid and all in that context text and other context, you're always asking, what's coming back? Yeah. In the of big course. picture, what are we looking at? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Billy says, do you find it possible to be impartial about a player and give a fair assessment without considering their draft stock or the price your team paid to acquire them?
1: I found it easier as, as I got more experience. I found it harder to start. I think that's a really good point uh, and a really good question. Um, to start, I think you're biased by that. I think you're impacted by it. I think you don't have as much confidence. Those um, not irrelevant, but less relevant points – um, uh, come to be and then I think uh, at least for myself is when I got a little more confidence uh, you have to give your assessment and then you have to be better put your work in to be able to back it up
0: okay makes sense to me Paul says Sam Bennett reminds me of Jake Vertanen. and I I completely agree with that and I I think yeah watching these guys playing you know where I live we see a lot of Vancouver so I've seen a lot of Jake Vertanen and they're like the same size they're just these little uh little they're they're shorter than the average hockey player, but they're just like bulls out there. These guys, they throw their bodies around and they're tough, and uh, they're there to they're there to mix things up a bit in the corners. And I agree with you on that, Paul. What do you agree with that, uh, Rich? Uh, you know, you you covered the West. Are they similar players at all?
1: Their styles are their styles are different. Um, I think they're they're both top ten picks for Canadian franchises that haven't maybe put up the numbers that those fan bases would want it or those fan bases saw from the picks that went after them. So the expectations get out of whack for the player. And then the team has to work on that with the player. Um, you know, they can provide value in certain contexts, but I think, you know, when you're drafted, what, six, six and fourth, yeah, people think you're going to be a superstar. And then this gets back to the point of, but I, when I went through that, you know, kind of question back and forth answer with you, Where's Rattanum played, what circumstances has he played?
0: Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Fair, fair. So Glock, Change has, Glock Chains has a good uh, comment here, and I wonder if you feel the same way, Rich. He says, I feel like Buffalo has had some recent scouting success. They all want to stay, even though they've been losing.
1: Um, Like the players want to stay, even when they've been losing? I think, um,
0: that, I think that's what he's saying, although I, there's been some questions whether or not Eichel wants to be there, but
1: Yeah, there's some questions as to that. There's also questions as to like the way they've done it. They've changed their management structure with with Jason Botterill, got let go and and Kevin Adams is in there. I know they were doing some video scouting, I believe. um, And I'm not sure if they've ramped that up or not. So they've done some different things and I don't think different is bad or wrong. um, But um, I need to look into a little bit more about how they're doing things to be able to kind of identify whether or not it would be I guess success is that's defined. And I know that's, of course, subjective.
0: Sure. He goes on to, to remind us that uh, David Pasternak and Leon Dreisaitl are low picks. Yeah. I mean, my favorite low pick of all time is probably Pavel Datsuk. I think he was picked like last overall in his draft or something like that. So uh, like, just.
1: That, sorry. Datsuk was a late pick. Uh, Pasternak was a later pick. Dreisaitl was an early pick, but uh, Pasternak was a uh, what, 26 overall pick. And I mean, look at the career he's had so it's not like you can't find those guys I know Philadelphia for years did an amazing job I got off the top of my head those kind of 10-15 years ago Philadelphia players Mike Richards, Jeff Carter, Claude Giroux, Justin Williams I think all those guys went below 15.
0: Yeah so I think what what he means is uh, low in the round although Paul reminds us that Dreisaitl was the third overall pick so Glock, you might have someone confused there, but uh, thanks for the comment, certainly appreciate it. Joe says, as collectors, aren't we all sort of taking on the persona of a scout, a GM and an owner all at once? See, I I think you nailed it there, Joe. We are certainly doing that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Richard on because he is a scout and he can perhaps give, you know aside from the just the curiosity of what it's like to be a scout and all the really cool insights he's given us tonight, um, to the extent that we could apply some of his insights to cards uh, I thought would be really interesting for the show. So, um, but I certainly agree with you, Joe, that's, we are, that's what we're doing when we're prospecting and looking for cards. it's easier when you're doing vintage and you know that you're collecting Gordy Howes and Wayne Gretzky's and, and Mario Lemieux's and even to the extent of Sidney Crosby's and Connor McDavid's, you know, these guys are, are wonderful you know, generational players. Uh, Billy says, and this is a good question too, you know, some teams have dedicated large amounts of cap space to goaltending Florida, in particular with Bobrovsky, um, He could turn things around, but how do you feel about dedicating 10 million to that position?
1: I'll pass on the specific question there, if you don't mind, Jared, but um, it is, it has become, it's not as common to dedicate that much to that position, uh, but you do see teams do it, um, obviously, as, 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 uh, the viewers pointing out, you've also just seen Montreal do it, right? Like they brought in Jake Allen. He doesn't Uh have a cheap contract. Carey price obviously isn't a a cheap contract. You've seen Toronto do it by volume. They've brought in Aaron Dell and Michael Hutchinson to go with Frederick Anderson um, and Jack Campbell. So, you know, some teams do it by volume. Some teams do it by uh, money as part of the cap that goes to organizational philosophy. um, And I think, Every manager is probably different on that. Yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes it's also not even a decision you make if a player ends up being even better than you thought and he performs really well and his numbers are great. You may just have to pay him because what else are you going to do? I mean, he's become that player that you didn't maybe didn't expect, Like from especially from goaltenders, right? They can kind of trap you that way too. Because if they carry your team to a great season, the organizational and I think, communal pressure from the fan base is that you have to bring them back you may not even love them you know and so i thought st louis kind of handled that pretty well with with um jordan binnington because you couldn't cut ties with the player not that they were going to do that necessarily but did you want to marry him long term did you want to have a you know was there a middle ground there that that allowed you to be comfortable along with you know keeping your fan base happy after winning a cup
0: yeah, I have a question for you on the Pittsburgh Penguins and their goaltending. So, there was the Las Vegas expansion. They figured they're gonna they're gonna give up that they had Matt Murray come in, so they got him to cover. They can now afford to let Flurry go. Now they've moved on from Matt Murray, and it seems like Tristan Jari, I think, is their their go to guy now. I think. Do you think they regret moving or exposing? Mark Andre Fleury, when they did for the for the Vegas Panthers to come in and get a guy who's you know had a part in making them such a wonderful franchise for a team that's only been around for four years or so.
1: I don't think so because Murray was so well heralded and had won two cups for them. Now am I? I yeah. yeah, because they because they, they haven't gone back to the cup, haven't won a cup since the Vegas came into the league. So um, yeah, I won two cups for them. I mean, it was so young and well-regarded. It would have been tough to go a different way. And Flirty obviously loved in the dressing room and had a great career there. One, three cups started, you know, one cup all the way through against Detroit. Um, but he also was making big money on a team that wanted to spend money elsewhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I wonder about that. Cause you know, they, they did move on from Murray now. And uh, I wonder if uh, Ottawa just came into a windfall of a, of a great goaltender or if Murray, you know, you say Murray won them two cups. I'd argue that Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin yeah, won fair, them two cups, fair, right? Fair. But not argue, just point out. But oh, interesting. Okay. Let's keep on going well,
1: here. Quick, quickly. Oh, I want to yep. get on that because that goes back to the goaltending thing. I mean, look, look how unpredictable it is, you know, yeah, you're the top guy. Suddenly you're you're moved off of and you're overpaid. Happens yeah. quick, he's gay. Matt Murray's not old.
0: No, for sure. For for sure. And now I wonder if they had to pick between Marc-Andre Fleury, Matt Murray, and Tristan Jari. Obviously, they take Jari over Murray, but do they take Jari over Marc-Andre Fleury right now? Considering Fleury's much older and all that. I mean, you yeah, but so is Crosby and Malkin. Like Fleury might be a better match for that team right now than Tristan Jari is. But I guess it all comes down to philosophy and how they're balancing winning today with building for the future as well. So Dex Flow says, love the content, Jeremy. Got my first hockey card today, a BVG8 Gretzky rookie. Well, congratulations to you, Dex. I'm curious, did you pick up an Opeechee or a Tops? If you're still there, please let me know in the comments. Would love to know which one you picked up, but congratulations to you. I do believe that's a card that every sports card collector should have in their collection, you know, unless you're just, all you do is collect, I don't know, Barry Sanders or something like that. But anyway, you know what I mean? Somewhat you, it's a card that everybody should have. Um, Glockchain says, this is the best hockey podcast I've ever seen for cards. He goes on to say for cards. Well, we'll take that. We'll take that, Glock. I really appreciate that, man. Thank, thank you so much. That, 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 that makes me feel really good. Um, PLJ says, "Do you self-assess two to four, two to five years later on some players that you scouted where they are at versus what you thought they would become?"
1: Hundred percent. It's totally part of the job. Totally 100%. monitoring how the guys come, how, how the guys come along. Where you got it wrong, really more than where you got it right. You're gonna get, yeah. you're gonna get it wrong awful lot. Also, with me, it's just gonna I need to figure out where I got it wrong and then how to get better for the next group coming through.
0: Right. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. That's the end of the questions for now. Paul, oh, sorry, right over here. Paul Cashman points out Chicago won a cup with Niemi, right? And Taves and Kane and Seabrook and Keith and sod And I mean, they've had some, uh, I don't know if Saad was the same year Niemi was there, but because they did win a few cups, but uh, good comment, Paul. A uh, couple more questions. Uh, Dex, it's a tops OPC. OPC cost too much. Paid 1.9k. That sounds like a good price to me for a PSA8 tops. Even I'm a fan of the tops rookie more so than I've ever been in my whole life. And I mean, I've been collecting Gretzky rookies since the mid 80s. So um, I, I'm a big fan of the tops card. I think it's undervalued uh, compared to. I'm not saying it's worth as much as the OPC, but I think it should be worth more than it is. That's just me. Um, and I will for full disclosure, I do have one, one PS, uh, one tops Gretzky rookie in my collection. Um, Paul Cashman. Yeah. Hey, I hear you, Paul. I hear you. Uh, Billy says "Is Taylor Hall, a guy you would dedicate term and money to if you were building a team, has he fallen off from his MVP season or was Phoenix just the wrong fit?
1: Um, it's tough to dedicate. So if Taylor Hall would be a guy who So the first question I think you want to ask is, do you want to dedicate that much money in terms to the wing? He's not going to play center. Um, And then do you dedicate it to a guy who's had some injury history before? So it would be a hard decision really to dedicate that much. I wouldn't read too much, though, into the Arizona uh, situation. He wasn't there for a long time. Um, Not sure he had a centerman that really um, complemented his skill set, which is a pretty unique skill set. Uh, in a good, kind of a good and bad way to a degree. Um, so I don't think his struggles in Arizona are going to dictate how he plays, say, in Buffalo this year. Um, but I think that the pandemic and the financial arrangement for the league had an impact on the salary he signed. But I do think that the questions that were raised and the concerns there are probably played a factor as well.
0: Do you think that he's better complemented in Buffalo? Yes. Do you think Buffalo is poised to improve
1: they should i mean w- w- when you add a player like that uh to your organization uh they'll have another year the coach they can, you know keep coaches around and get some continuity that's important they're gonna obviously need some goaltending cool tending to, to make them better um uh to improve their squad there's some other yeah i i think i think they should be a, be a better team this year
0: what about ottawa i mean they've made some they seem to be a whole completely different team how do you think they're gonna fare this year
1: they might be fun to watch. Uh, well, you know what? Ottawa, I think when we, you know, sometimes you get ahead of yourself. Like, I get ahead of myself in terms of like, okay, will they be fun to watch? Will they be fun to watch this year? I don't know about this year. Will they be fun to watch in two years? Yes, I believe uh-huh.
0: so. Yeah, good. Joe says, I monitor where I got it wrong with cards too. Yeah, we all do, right, Joe? I mean, it's because we're so obsessed with it that we, uh, and passionate about it, that we, we follow our cards, you know? Um, Okay. That that was great, Rich. I mean, I think we, I think we can pretty much wrap this up. Um, We have no more questions right now. I'm sure we might get a couple last second stragglers, but I'll just take a second to thanks for joining me. I mean, it's, it's obviously great to see you and hang out with you as uh, you know, we, we obviously grew up together and uh, our family. So that's pretty cool. And, uh, but uh, this has been a really great, really great episode because, you know, usually we're talking just about cars, but you bring a really unique perspective to sports to hockey fans and hockey card collectors and maybe even a little bit to some other sports too just from the insights you have as a scout so thanks so much for your time thanks for joining it's been fun hanging out with you for a couple nights in a row here guys i want to thank everybody else for watching as well for tuning in hit that thumbs up button if you don't mind subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet i gotta think most of you have by now but again i appreciate all of you appreciate all the comments tonight it's been uh it's been really great. Um, I wasn't, you know, I knew that this was going to be a bit of a different episode because it's not super card focused, but I was excited about it because one thing, you know, rich, one thing that the audience I've got feedback is that the the diverse guest list that I've had, this is, this is episode 60, believe it or not. This, yeah, this is episode 60 already, which blows my mind. So I'm glad to have you on for sort of an anniversary episode, if you will. So uh, that's great. Um, couple, so we're, we're going to wrap it up, rich. Um, I'll let you s- you know, say goodbye. And then we'll have a couple, uh, we'll just read the, uh, the comments that are coming out, uh, coming into the, the, the chat right now.
1: Well, I haven't been on an you know, interview or anything like this in a, in a long time. And it's been a, it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. You're really good at this chair, I got to tell you. Thanks, really right I know that's, that's not easy. I'm serious. It's not easy. Um, and it's, uh, it's been great to catch up as well. And I, the questions were awesome. And the comments and everything, it's been, a, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I've, same here, I really appreciate it. All right, Legion, the round of applause is always. Thanks, Legion. Legion. I gotta ask you, is it always seven hands clapping? or Cause it's always a run of them, every show. Legion's a, a very loyal viewer, love having them here. But I'm just curious, Legion, if it's always the same amount of hands. Just curious, cause I don't count them. The first time I've counted them is tonight, I see seven. Uh, Joe says, high quality guest per usual. Thanks guys, thank you, Joe. Glock, A guest, we're very lucky. There you go, Rich, nice compliment. Thank okay. you, Glock, great to have you. Legion says, very insightful. Thank you. Billy says, where is the sports cards live? Pokemon pickups update. Great guest. Nice way to break things up. I'll get to that in a second, Billy. Paul Cashman, good show as always. Thank you, Paul, for joining. Appreciate having me here. And all the viewers out there who are not posting, thanks for watching. Anyone who's going to watch this in reruns or on on podcast format later, thanks for tuning in. And I'll just let you guys know, I do have some things to show. I'm going to just show you guys this right now. So I've got these two boxes that came. Uh, this is the swag box I got from attending the, uh, Beckett industry summit. And this is something that, uh, I haven't opened yet. It just came in yesterday and I'm going to do a, maybe do a sort of special episode with this and crack it and let everybody see what Beckett sent me. I'm hoping there's some good stuff in here. I think there will be. And then, um, My guest from Saturday night, uh, Corey Donovan, Yamwax, sent me a Pokemon starter kit. So I'm looking forward to opening this up and seeing what he sent me. I haven't uh, opened it yet. And other than that, I've still got another mail day that I'll probably uh, go through here on the channel uh, in the next little bit here. So without further ado, thanks, everybody. Oh, Carlos is there. Carlos, good to see you. Thanks for the uh, feedback. Appreciate it. And thank you, Dexflow, for a, I forget what they call them, a a tip of some sort. But uh, thanks so much. It's the second one I've ever received. So thank you very much. Much appreciated. Anyway, everybody, thanks again for joining Rich, thank you again. And everybody, we will see you back here on Saturday with Scott Greenberg from StarStock. Good night, everybody. Rich, wait right there.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old.